have been walking through a series in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, if you've not been with us, you might not understand the context of all this. Uh, it's been a great series. This chapter is what is commonly known as the love chapter. And we've talked about this a little bit, but it, it's very uh, interesting that this is, is here and, and the way that it's... Um, positioned in this letter, um, and it, nev- it hasn't ceased to amaze me how God has orchestrated it and what Paul used it for here in this section. If, you, um, if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony, more than likely this passage is used, uh, and it fits that. Um, but in the original context, I'm not sure that, that it, that's all that it meant, I believe that it had a lot to do with leading and leading in the church and relationships inside of the church. And it's almost like Paul does this little culmination right there. So that's what we're going to be today. Um, We're going to pick up in chapter uh, 13, verse 5. We'll get there here in a moment. If you've got your Bible and you want to move along, we're going to be all over 1 Corinthians. So we're going to be in chapter uh, 6, 7, uh, 10, 11, 14, uh, all over, um, as well as First John and others. But um, anyway, parents, do you remember? Um, do you remember sending your first child to school for the first time? You remember that feeling um, of sending your child to school? For the very first time. Now, dads, this may not have affected you as much as it affects the moms, uh, the mothers, um, but nonetheless, that feeling. And it's this feeling that you have been raising, you've been nurturing this child, this little innocent child for a long time. And you've raised this child to this age and now you're just going to take this child and drop them off. You're going to drop them off to be cared for by other people that you don't know that well. How are they going to care for them? And then how are these other people, these other kids in the school going to interact with them? And how is your innocent child going to be affected? You know that feeling. That feeling of sending your child away. And, and that You've been trying to protect the vulnerability of that child, right? That thing that you've guarded. And I remember, I remember when Emma started kindergarten, getting a phone call from Katie after picking her up from Carline. And you know, if you're, a, if you're a parent, if you're a mom especially, like you know when there's something wrong with your child, like she could see something was wrong with, her, with Emma in the car line, and then you know, uh, husbands, when you get that phone call from your wife, you know something's not right. I got that phone call, and, and what ended up happening is she ended up pulling out of Emma that Emma had colored a raccoon. I'm going to make sure it's right, okay? Because I got in trouble first service. Apparently, I didn't get it right. You colored it what color? Brown. She colored the raccoon brown, Okay. Now, you may not think that's a big deal, but some little punk kid, <laughs> my wife said I shouldn't have said that, but um, you, you mess with my daughter, you're a punk kid. Um, <laughs> some little punk kid told my daughter that that was wrong, that it should have been gray, 
But Emma didn't have a gray crayon. She only had a brown crayon, so she colored it brown. And I tell you that because that was rude. Y'all remember Full House? How rude. Um, but anyways, um, that was rude, and especially for her. The innocence of, of, of this little kindergartner to, to, to go through all the effort of, of coloring this, this raccoon and, and putting pride and, and time into it, and then to be belittled by a punk who would later, I've got to say, would become her friend. Um, she made sure I said that. And then it was funny because that wasn't even the school that she goes to now. But then a, one of her friend's grandmother comes up to her after the service and is like, was that my daughter? Um, it wasn't. But to that little kindergartner, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And I know that without a shadow of a doubt, you have encountered rude people in your own life. Whether it's the person who cuts you, cut you off on the interstate and you have some choice words for them or for those people who have those license plates that are from that other state up north that like to drive in the left-hand lane. You know if you're from Virginia what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> or whatever it may be. It may be that you've encountered someone at the grocery store that was rude or Maybe in a restaurant, or maybe you've even worked in the retail. Maybe you've worked retail, maybe you've worked in the restaurant industry, and you've experienced rude people who have been your customers. And what happens in that moment is that when you encounter that rude person, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth, and it leaves a bad impression of that person on you. And this is what Paul is beginning to talk about here in this verse of chapter 13. He begins to address this. Now remember, he's been addressing the church and he's been talking to them for, for a, a long time and now he begins to address them as love is not rude. And he's, he's trying to get them to understand. He's been doing this kind of summation of his writings from this letter, other letters, his visits, and he's trying to get them to understand the characteristics of love. He's primarily pointing out how these relate to one another in relationships inside of the church, outside of the church, but altogether just relationally how love and these characteristics should work. And even how we as, I want you to think about this, because even as we as inside the church, sometimes we have, this, um, we have this perceived notion that we don't, we're not concerned about what people think about us outside the church. But here's the thing, there's people who are outside of the church that when they see us inside of the church and see our, how we're rude and how we interact with other people and they look and say, well, if that's happening inside of the church, why would I want to be there? And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've encountered a rude believer, a rude Christian, or even had people inside of the church who have hurt you and the perception that it left on you, the impact that it left on you. Maybe even somebody in your own family, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent who just wasn't a kind person and it left an impact on you and this is where we find ourselves here in first corinthians chapter 13 if you've got your bibles we're going to read verses four through seven this morning 
says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. How it is always true. How it always speaks to us. And Father, we ask that you would do that this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this room and in our lives to illuminate our hearts with your word. Father, may you speak to us now in this moment as we dive into this passage and all that encompasses 1 Corinthians. Father, we ask that you would move all the distractions away, that you would speak to us here in this moment. Father, that you would give me the words that you would have your people here this morning. Father, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, uh, this word that we have for rude, I really, really wanted to say the Greek word. And I tried, and it's about near impossible. Um, so I'll spare you that because I'll butcher it. But this word here, rude, is only found in two places in the scriptures. It's translated to rude here, but it's also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are the only two places. This word means to behave dishonorably or to disgrace oneself. That's what it means. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's a little bit different. And I, I, this is just kind of for free. I, I, I think this is so interesting. Again, this is how Paul is kind of relating and connecting everything here. But listen to this in chapter 7, in verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly, that's the same word, toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity and having his desires under control and has determined to it, it, this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And what Paul says here and what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is not rude, behaving dishonorably or disgracing oneself. And what he says here is he says in the context of chapter 7 where he's talking about marriage and relationships, he says, listen, if you are, if someone is engaged to be married, now the engagement and betrothal processes were very much similar but a little bit different, longer um, sometimes the husband would, would um, uh, in preparing to get married, would prepare the house, would build a house or whatever that took to, to do where they were going to live. The, the wife would, would get uh, taught by other wives how to be a wife and all of these things. But what Paul says is, listen, don't behave dishonorably. Don't disgrace yourself. If you need to marry, just get married. It's not a sin. And it's just a very interesting thing that we have here. And this is what he's saying to us in both 13 and here. 
is that this idea of rude, love is not rude, behaves dishonorably or disgraces oneself. So I got three things that I want you to see today. And the first one is this, just that, love is not rude. And I want you to think about this inside of the relationships that we have. Inside of the church, outside of the church, how we lead inside of the church. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is pleading with the church in Corinth to love and to love in a more excellent way. Not to allow sin to corrupt them, not to allow the the, the sin and the hurt and the pain to determine how they love and function inside of the relationships or even inside of the church. He's saying, I want you, regardless of the situation or regardless how someone treats you, I want you to love. Because the characteristic of love is not rude. Love is not rude. And like we said, Undoubtedly, we've all encountered this at some point or another. Whether it's your spouse, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a person in your church, maybe it's not even, you're not even aware of part of a church and someone from inside of the church behaved this way. And Paul says, love does not act this way. And we know this more fully from what we find in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11 says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Paul says, or John says this, he says, he says This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. He doesn't say that you should behave dishonorably to one another or that you should act rudely to one another, but you should love one another. And we, he even follows that up and says, this is not how things should be. Why? Why should we love? He says this in chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God is love, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love abides in us and we are Love is perfected in us. And he says this. He says, love was made manifest by God sending his son Jesus to earth to be in the form of a servant to be sacrificed on our behalf. He says, love because he first loved us. He doesn't say act act dishonorably. He He doesn't say act rudely to one another. He says, love one another. I want you to think about how this looks outside of the church. When we, inside of the church, inside of the church walls, act rudely to one another. Does that mean that we're always going to get this right? Well, no. Because there are times where uh, the, the sin of the flesh, the flesh that we have, our humanity, the sin that is naturally innate in us, is going to take over and it's going to come out. And that means from time to time that we are going to behave dishonorably to one another, to other believers, to family members. I mean, if you're a parent, I can guarantee you've been rude to your kids. Am I the only one? Yeah, that's right. That's right. When you've got four kids, it just happens. 
like that. But we've all done it. We're all guilty of this. We all behave in such way. But what, what Paul is telling us is this is not a characteristic of love. This is not the way that God designed it. In fact, God, he, he says, God showed us love by sending Jesus for us. So we're not going to get it right. We are sinful people. We are broken people. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. We know the story uh, of the Good Samaritan. I had too much scripture. I don't want to put this in there too. Um, but, but, but we see this story and what happens is the guy gets beat up. This Jewish man gets beat up. He gets left for dead on the side of the road. And who passes by him? The priest and the Levite. Both people who should have stepped in and had pity for the man, but who ended up stepping in and caring for the man? It was the least likely person to show kindness, to be there for them. It was the one who, who they would have thought would have been the rude one, but the rude one was not the Samaritan. The Samaritan stopped. And so... The point is we love. Love is not rude. We love. Second thing is this. Love is not selfish. Love is not selfish. The, the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth were models of what it meant not to model this. Like they were not your models of the Christian life. In fact, like if you were a, a new believer or if you knew a new believer, you would not give someone the book of 1 Corinthians and say, hey, go read this and model their lifestyle. In fact, you would say, no, this is the lifestyle you shouldn't model. These are the characteristics you shouldn't model. And what the church in, in Corinth did was they were models of selfish people. I read this this week. Again, the, the, the Corinthian believers were, were models of, of what loving Christians should not be. They were selfish to the extreme. They didn't share their food at love feast. They protected their rights to the point that, of suing other believers in pagan courts. And they wanted what they thought were the quote-unquote best spiritual gifts for themselves. Instead of using spiritual gifts for the benefit of others, they tried to use them to their own advantage. Paul therefore tells them, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. They didn't use their gifts for the building up of the church, except they used their gifts for the building up of themselves. And what the church in Corinth was doing is they were selfish so far that they were allowing so many things going. If you haven't read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you should just read the whole thing. Because all of this would make a whole lot more sense if you just read the whole thing. It would help you understand this. But they were so selfish. I want to point out a few things. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They were suing other believers. Verse 1. When one, uh, when one of you has a grievance against uh, another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent uh, to try trivial cases? So what he's saying is that you, the, the church is to judge the world, and now you're allowing the world to try trivial cases in your own church. He says this in verse 3, Do you not know that you are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes against, uh, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Here's what's happening in, in, the, in the church in Corinth. They are having these trivial little things, Paul says. These trivial little things that are inside of the church. And he's saying, look, there's, there should be somebody wise enough inside of your body, inside of your church to handle these disputes. Instead, you're going outside of the church, you're going into law, into pagan courts, and you are trying these cases before people who are not even believers. This is how selfish you are. And what Paul says is, hey, look, what you should do is you should just be defrauded. You should just let go. You should just let things pass. They were extremely selfish They were suing other believers. Look at chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and the other gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? What shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He says this. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better. It's actually for the worse. Because when you come together, you're coming together. And instead of preferring your brother and your sister in the church, you are getting all that you want and eating everything that you can, filling up yourselves. You're getting drunk at the table. And others are are not even getting something to eat. They were extremely selfish people. To the point that they were suing inside of their church and they were neglecting the body. They also desired the quote unquote best spiritual gifts. What, what I love about this, this chapter in this section here, and we talked about this, that chapter 12 and chapter 14 talk about inside of the church and gifts and how the church should function and how the proper order for these things happen. And then stat, uh, smack in the middle of this is chapter 13. But chapter 13 is not, it's not just out of place. It was there for a reason. And as he's talked about this, he talks about how through these spiritual gifts that they're preferring spiritual gifts above their brothers or sisters. And the wording he uses is he says, seek these gifts for the common good. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. He says this, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, he says, strive to excel, not in building your own self up, but building up the church. 
And so here's the thing, spiritual gifts, and especially in that moment where they were talking about spiritual gifts, they were, were so tuned into spiritual gifts for their own good. Listen, the spiritual gifts were given to the church, to individuals for the church, not for the individual's sake, but for the corporate body's sake. And when we miss this, we become extremely selfish in desiring these things for ourselves and not for the edifying and the building up of the body. And so Paul begins to kind of uh, point all of this out and talk about this idea of selfishness and, and, and not being selfish here in chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, it says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He says in verse 24, so let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then he goes on to in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 10 in verse 32, he says, no, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please every, everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. He says in verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He says this, he says, you should not be seeking these things for your own advantage, but you should be seeking them for the edifying, for the building up of the body. And he says, listen, not that I am some, some grandiose person, but listen, all that I am, all that I do, I am laying down at the feet of Jesus. I have sacrificed everything that I have for you, for Jesus. And so as I live, I am imitating Jesus. So as I live and imitate Jesus, imitate me. But this is this idea of sacrifice. This idea of love is not selfish. And then in Matthew chapter 20, even, even the disciples didn't understand this in that moment. In verse 20 of chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with uh, up to him, to Jesus, with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something, and he said, what do you, what do you want? He, sa he said to her, say that these two sons of mine will sit at your right, and, and one at your right, and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and to my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard that they became indignant of the two brothers, but Jesus called to them, called to him and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be the greatest among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And here's what happens. James and John's mom come up and say, let, us, let, let my boys sit at your right and your left in glory. And he says, you don't even know what you're asking. And then in fact... Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be first must die to themselves. Whoever wants to be first must lay their life down and be sacrificed for my behalf. Because even me, I come from heaven. I come from glory and I am not seeking to be glorified. I am seeking to serve. 
I'm not seeking to be served. I'm seeking to serve to save what was lost. I read this this week. Love does not seek its own. Here's probably the key to everything. The root evil of fallen human nature is wanting to have its own way. Cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rejected God's way so that they could have their own way. Self-replaced self God. That is the opposite of righteousness and the opposite of love. Love is not preoccupied with its own things but the interest of others. Love is not selfish. Love is selfless. And that's our last, that's our last thing today. Love is selfless. And this is honestly the hardest thing for us to grab. This is the hardest thing for us to, to, to um, think about and even walk through. Because every single morning, every single morning when you wake up and your feet hit the floor and you take your first breath of the day, regardless of who you are and how holy and how in tune with God you are, your mind begins to think about the things that you have to do. Your mind begins to think about your needs. Your mind begins to think about the things that you have to accomplish that day, not the sacrificing to others. And this is so hard for us to wrap our mind around. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Love is not selfish. Love is not self-seeking. Love is selfless. Love prefers others more than your own interests, your own desires. Love prefers others more than your own time. Love prefers, prefers others more than blank. Love prefers others more than blank. You fill in the blank with whatever you want to put in there. Because it, and when it comes down to it, love prefers others more than anything that you can put in that blank. More than any type of word or anything that you can think or anything that you do, love prefers others over blank. And this is the hardest thing for us to get. This is the hardest thing for us to wrap our mind around. Because when we look at it, love according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or 13, in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, does not seek its own interest or edification, but seeks, instead of its own interest, edifying others. And we just miss it. We just miss it every single time. Love is not selfish, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. In essence, what he's saying, it doesn't insist on its own, but it lays down its life for others. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing when our brothers and sisters go wrong. We don't rejoice at that. But what? It rejoices with the truth. And then he sums it up with four things. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. This is really hard for us. This is really hard for us in life and even as we come to the end of our life and our time here on earth. Undoubtedly, you in this room have dealt with loss, whether you've lost a loved one, whether you've lost a spouse, whether you've lost a kid, whether you've lost a parent, whether you've lost a close, close friend, we have all dealt with that in our life. And I want to tell you a story today that I I heard this week as we close. And this story, I believe, points to just the fact that love is not selfish. The story goes like this. A chauffeur driver pulls up with a very fancy car to the cemetery. Sh- chauffeur driver rolls down the window and asks for the caretaker, and the caretaker comes over to the car. The back window rolls down, and inside of the limousine is an old, frail lady whose eyes are sunken, and it looks like she doesn't have much time left. And as she proceeds to talk to the caregiver, she says, you know, sir, you may not know me, but I have been sending $5 every month to your cemetery. My husband is buried here, and I've sent that $5 for those flowers. And she said, I've come today because the doctors have told me I only have a couple weeks to live. And I would like to see his grave one last time. And the caretaker looks at the lady and he says, Ma'am, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of the money that you've been sending, but I have to confess to you today that that money that you've been sending, I've not been put flowers on your husband's grave. In fact, I'm a part of a team that goes and cares for people in the hospital who are sick, who are hurting, who take things to people who are in the hospital. And in fact, we we take flowers to those people who are in the hospital. And no disrespect, ma'am, but um, those flowers that I would have bought for your husband's grave, they would have died very quickly. And your husband would have never seen them. But there are people in the hospital every single day who are hurting who seem to have no hope. And me and my team of people have been taking that money and been taking flowers to these individuals. And before the caretaker knew it, the window rolls up and the chauffeur driver drives off. And he knew he was in trouble and probably upset the lady. But what surprised him was a few months later, that same car pulls up. And he notices and he walks over to the car and the window rolls down, and the chauffeur driver's not in the driver's seat. It's the old lady. 
who's in the driver's seat. She said, sir, you know, I, I was really upset when you told me what you had been doing with the money that I had been sending. It really bothered me. But the more I got to think about it, I realized that I was being selfish. I was being selfish because I wasn't caring for others. I loved my husband, but he's gone and he's in a better place. And I was being selfish because I was putting money into something that didn't bring anybody joy except for myself. And she said, it's been months now since they told me I was gonna die and the doctors can't figure out why. But I know because for the last few months, I've been taking those flowers myself to the hospital. And I've been taking them to people who have been hurting and are in need. And I realize why I'm still alive. I realize why I'm still here. It's because God has given me something to live for. And that story just caught me. Because the thing about it is, it's way too often in life, we get so selfish about our own desires. And this is no disrespect to people who have passed on or to cemeteries or anything of that, but when we put those flowers, those flowers are for us, they're not for anybody else. And how many other places in life do we prefer ourselves over others? that we have put ourselves in such a selfish place that we prefer our own desires, our own things before we desire the preferences of others, before we desire to care for others. And so maybe you're in a place today where, where you have struggled with that yourself. And maybe you know you're sitting here today and you, you heard this passage and you begin to say, well, I know that I'm not a nice person all the time. I'm not nice to my, to my wife, I'm not nice to my kids, I'm not nice at work, I'm not nice to my employees, I'm not nice, fill in the blank. And that began to work on you. Or maybe you realize that in, in many ways, shapes and forms, that you prefer your own preferences, your own desires over others. And here's the reality of the Christian walk. When you walk into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he says you pick up your cross daily and you die to yourself and you lay it down for me. Why? Because I first laid my life down for you. And maybe today you just need to lay some things at the feet of Jesus. Maybe there's some things that have burdened you, that you've been dealing with, that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus. And maybe you you don't even know how to be kind because Christ is not in your heart. And so what's gonna happen here in just a moment is these altars are gonna be open. I'm gonna pray for you. And maybe there's some things that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus. And we would be here. We would love to talk to you, pray with you through that. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Whatever it may be, we're gonna be here for you. Y'all stand with us as I pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word, for your goodness of how your word always strikes us, how your word is living and active, how it is constantly cutting us deep, whether we like it or not. And Father, in this moment right now, Father, I ask that you would continue to work, to do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do to stir in us in such a way that it would propel change in our lives. 
that we would behave differently towards one another, especially inside of the church, but also outside of the church. So Father, I ask right now that we would just lay some things at your feet, and I ask that you would do the work in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all sing with us.